You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York, in for Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, the sell-off it continues across the board. Tech is in the crosshairs as fears linger over the Fed's ability to tackle inflation. The Nasdaq 100, well, now down 10% in the last three trading days. Plus, crypto not spared in this sell-off. Bitcoin slipping down below 32,000, down more than 50% from its all-time high. My conversation with Galaxy Digital's Michael Novogratz about where he thinks the bottom might be. And look out below how the slide in equities is affecting the once-hot IPO market. We'll talk to one tech CEO who says, look, the traditional IPO process is actually a scam. Kicking things off, Victoria Green. She's the chief investment officer and founding partner over at G Squared. Victoria, perfect to have your voice because what do you make of whether we're going to see capitulation in the market sometime soon, whether the correlations are all sort of working against a tech investor right now? I don't think it's going to capitulate yet. You know, the number one uh, best adage right now is don't fight the Fed. And I think the Fed is going up. They're going to hike. They're going to tighten. And that's a little bit tough on, on tech and growth right now. And honestly, not all stocks are created equal right now. I, I'm kind of saying out with the new and in with the old. All of the new stuff, the pandemic darlings that are now pandemic duds, are not really performing the same as some of the old tech. You look at your IBMs, your Cisco, your Broadcoms, and, and, and more of the value tech. So right now, we really do think you want to be only companies that are giving you the earnings now that have a sustainable path forward uh, on how they're going to grow their earnings, not just on a wing and a prayer and what they hope will happen. And so I think you see a lot of these stocks getting punished. I mean, Amazon's down 33% since the end of March, and, and that company obviously prints billions upon billions of cash. But yeah. I think investors are looking, where are we going to find growth? How are you going to grow your earnings? Why is Microsoft off more than 4%? Are people questioning the growth of that sort of a business as well? Or is this that sort of at the moment everything, the baby goes out with the bathwater? Yeah. It's a falling tide 
calling all boats. You know, that's a horrible way of putting it. But at baby and bathwater, absolutely. There's nowhere to hide right now. If you're looking for green on the screen, it is very minimal, especially in the tech sector. I don't think there's anything wrong with earning. Uh, Microsoft, they had great earnings. Uh, and, and obviously, they've got good potential. But I think they're getting dragged down with everyone else. You're seeing this correlation with, with Bitcoin, with tech stocks, with mm. the ARK funds. And we actually could term that the holy trinity. And you're seeing that correlation live up to it. It's, it's billing right now because you're, you really can't see one move without the other one. And you're not seeing Bitcoin be a hedge at all. You're seeing it not hedge inflation. And you're seeing it more and more develop into a tradable stock type investment that has no earnings. So, it, you know, it, what it is, I think we're finding out a little bit more what it is. When you're chief investment officer, are you looking at, well, either is this a buy the dip moment and, you know, when everyone else is fearful, be greedy, or is there something that you need to see, some sort of bottom, some sort of clearing of the deck by the Federal Reserve, some sort of sign of, of peak inflation before you start thinking, okay, now is a safe moment to be allocating cash? Uh, we're not quite buyers yet of the tech sector. I think it's a little early. I don't think we've seen capitulation yet. Uh, the Fed's not going to rescue us here. I think there are some people holding out some hope that maybe they won't be as hawkish because look at how bad the market's been. Uh, but we're holding tight. We've been looking more at value. I think with tech, you know, there are some selective names. You look at some of the semis that have sold off or cybersecurity that, that are very good companies. You're seeing it just it doesn't matter who you are. You're going down. I think it's early to come in. And if you look at the technicals, we're kind of in this this middle ground right now and and I think that means there's more to fall there's nothing to rescue us really soon what is the sign of capitulation for you Victoria I mean, I think we need a, a really strong 90% down day. I think we need to find some support and some footing on the technical side. And I think, obviously, you know, have we reached peak hawkish Fed? I don't think so. I think they're going to run off their balance sheet. So I think maybe this summer we could see it move around. You know, I don't see us avoiding recession. So I'm not moving very fast right now because I see a little bit more pain in the cards, especially for this sector. Meanwhile, at 44.45 p.m. New York time, it was announced by Grindr that it is going to go public through a Tiger SPAC at $2.1 billion valuation. I mean, our, I've seen headline after headline, Bank of America, Goldman, City, all these banks backing away from being exposed to special purpose acquisition companies. They're worried about the regulation effect, worried about being in some way affected by it. Do you see companies still coming to the market? Do you see still SPACs purchasing companies? I think stacks work when they, they have a, a target in mind and they can acquire it. You know, it's just kind of a backdoor IPO. I think what they're trying to limit is the SPAC raising capital on, on hopes and dreams and not really having a set target. And you saw a lot of SPACs fail and the banks got rich, the sponsors got rich, and the underlying clients tended to not do well. So obviously the SEC stepping in uh, really made people back off. But similar to other IPOs, I think the SPAC is not going to be dead, but I think it's going to go back to doing what it was supposed to do, uh, which was kind of bring a company to market with a little bit of a back door but then it became open season and everybody was just raising all this money to eventually go buy something and there aren't enough targets and you saw multiple SPACs fail and, and you know you have to wonder obviously with Bumble and everything else this is a, a crowded space but the grinder has put a pretty in, decent niche in their market and it is a, is a viable product um, I think they're really targeting the SPACs that, that didn't really have a target and, and investors really got hurt by putting in money with this person knows what they're doing, they're going to be able to find this company for me and then eventually not finding what they wanted. 
There's a global element to this, of course. Yes, we're very fearful of the Fed, of inflation, of very close-to-home things. But, of course, this is also the perfect geopolitical storm. This is an inflationary pressure that is worldwide. This is also a story of slowdown, particularly in China. How much are you looking at those global effects from that at the moment, Victoria, or are you very much focused on what's affecting the U.S. economy? Well, I mean, the supply chain issue in China is, is going to affect us greatly. Uh, you know, we, we barely got out of COVID and we kind of duct taped together this recovery. We weren't really on that solid of a footing, even though the market had this tremendous rally off those March 2020 lows. And then we look around and you see what's happening in Shanghai, the, the zero COVID policies in China and the supply chain backup. We are still very vulnerable to that supply chain backup. You know, moving a factory in and actually shoring up your supply chain, well, maybe we have some other options and people are sitting on some more inventory. It's not easy to build. You can't build a factory and, and get it going in a year. So are our supply chains better? No. You have pressure coming from the war in Ukraine. You're cutting Russia out of the market. You have China shutting down, Shanghai shutting down. You see all of those ships backed up at the Shanghai port, very reminiscent of what was happening outside of the port of L.A., and you're already putting pressure on, on what wasn't really a, a great supply chain to begin with. So the world is getting smaller. And when the world gets smaller, you know, we cut out Russia, China's shutting down a little bit. How are you going to find your growth right now if you have less trading partners and you're paying more? So I think there's a lot of pain still to be had. I'm not an Uber bear. I think we can find footing. I don't think this is an 08. But I think you need to be very aware of what you own right now and how, how at risk you are to your earnings holding up. Are they sustainable? You know, and then you look at a Netflix and realize that, hey, some of these, these high flyer mega caps, you know, it takes one or two bad earnings for a Facebook or a Netflix and suddenly they lose 20, 30 percent of their value. Victoria Green could talk all afternoon to you. Thank you so much. Chief <laughs> Investment Officer for G Squared. Fascinating discussion, of course, coming from what is a boutique independent advisory firm. Meanwhile, coming up, more on the tech sell-off, what that means for the IPO landscape. We are just talking about it with Victoria. We'll discuss all this and more with mobile analytics company Amplitude. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way 
a brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're seeing the end of a long era of free money that our economy and the global economy has been in, you know, going back all the way to September 11th. Well, it's a bit of a bloodbath out there. So companies that were already in the IPO window hoping to go public this year, that window is shut. Late stage growth companies are pulling back. Early stage companies are not getting rounds done. I mean, there's a, a real venture chill uh, afoot, unfortunately. It's certainly a, a, a tough market out there, as you acknowledge. But, you know, at the same time at DoorDash, we're focused on the fundamentals and the fundamentals for DoorDash are incredibly strong. You know, we're not happy about, obviously, what's been happening with tech stocks or our stock. Uh, but at the same time, you know, new world that, that we're entering. And I just think about the fundamental value proposition that Toyo provides, you know, to our customers. Yeah, we just keep our eye on the ball, which is serving our customers. And I think that's what a lot of companies are, are probably just doing there in this time. A few tech executives there that we've been having across the Bloomberg Technology Show in the last week or so reacting to the tech sell-off. We want to talk to another CEO, Amplitudes. Spencer Skates is with us. Company joined the public market via a direct listing less than a year ago back in September. I mean, you got to the heady heights of about a $10 billion market cap and, and I'm afraid it's a lot less than that now, Spencer. And of course, I'm sure you're going to say, look, eye on the prize, keep focused on the business. But what do you do when your investors must be a little shell-shocked? Yeah. And again, I think we delivered a phenomenal Q1 result on our last earnings call. We're really excited about being out in the public markets. One of the number one things I had to emphasize with the team is that short-term market volatility is just not in your control. You can still deliver everything you commit to as a company. You can grow the business. We had one of our most phenomenal growth years last year being up 60% year over year. And you can still get hit in the public markets because of things outside of your control. And so we're seeing that that happened very broadly across the sector. You know, even companies that meet or exceed earnings expectations get hit. Mm. Um, and so it really tests what CEOs and what teams are in it for the long term versus short. Yeah, well said on that. And I'm interested as to how you make sure that your talent remains in the long term, because when you've had an exit moment, when you've, of course, people got a lot of money exposed to the share price now, how do you ensure that people remain as focused on the long term as you are? Well, we actually brought the entire company through a whole exercise where we actually pretended we were public before we went out into the markets, where we simulated a stock price for the company and we had it go way up and then we had it go way down um, and then we had it come back to the middle. And the key thing for everyone to understand and take away was that even if they delivered their results, even if they achieved their goals, even if they were successful as a company, that the stock price could have tremendous volatility. And so the only thing that we could control was whether we hit our goals, whether we ship products, whether we make customers happy. 
um, and to stay focused on that. And if you stay focused on that, that will result in success in the long term. Some of the best tech companies got started during downturns and recessions. Uh, Salesforce started in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, Facebook started around then as well. Lots of great companies like Airbnb started during the financial crisis in 2008. Um, and so it's really now is the is one of the best times to build and grow a uh, large tech company. And so this is where you see a lot of noise being removed from the market, where companies who are not as good will have to go through layoffs, will have to kind of pull back their mm. investments because money isn't available and as free as it is now as it was in the past. And it's really for those who have robust, durable businesses that will be able to weather the next few years. And so that's something that we've always done very well here at Amplitude. And the robustness of your business is also predetermined by the demand and by companies willing to spend on products such as yourselves. Do you feel like the sentiment is there, that the confidence is there for people to be buying Amplitude services? Oh, yeah. We had, you know, that's why we were very proud of the Q1 results that we had. We had a lot of great companies decide to either come on to Amplitude for the first time, companies like Barnes & Noble or Brink Security. We had a lot of companies expand on us in a big way. Uh, PayPal was a big, uh, ex uh, as a big uh, expansion growth this quarter. We had Square. We had OkCupid. We had IBM. We had the Weather Channel. So tons and tons of companies out there uh, really willing to make investments with Amplitude. And that goes back to the rising power of the product organization. So, you know, what we do here at Amplitude is we help companies build data-driven products. Um, and so what Adobe is for marketing and Salesforce is for sales team, Amplitude is for product teams. And so all the same mega trends around people driving uh, growth through products, so product-led growth, people needing data-driven products, um, digital optimization being the next wave after digital transformation, all of those data points are still very much ringing, ringing true today. Okay. And, and do you have what, what is it that continues to perhaps be a limitation to your growth? Does it, is it talent? I feel that everyone's talking about how fiercely everyone is fighting for it at the moment, how they're having to pay up for it, the inflationary pressure's there. Is that something you feel confident in where you currently stand, Spencer? Yeah, you know, talent's always a, a challenge for every company, and it's no different here at Amplitude, and that's honestly my number one concern. Mm. Before we went out into the public markets, people asked me, hey, what do you think the biggest risk to Amplitude is? Um, and I kept going back to talent and our ability to make them successful here at Amplitude. We're really confident um, in the market opportunity here, you know, $37 billion of total adjustable market for what we do. We're really confident in that we have a best-in-class product. Um, we had a number of awards that continue to come out about cementing Amplitude as the number one product analytics platform in the space. Um, and it, so it really comes down to our ability to execute yeah. on that. And that's that's the talent. Now, yeah. I think in the recessionary environment, you know, in a lot of ways, talent becomes cheaper uh, and more accessible because there's less opportunities mm. out there. So it's a, it's a really great opportunity for us in, to go play offense. We have this really strong balance yeah. sheet here at Amplitude. And, you know, we are continuing to make investments in talent across the board. Spencer Skates, Amplitude CEO. Meta, of course, parent company of Facebook, is opening its first physical store, and it's a brick-and-mortar bet on the metaverse. Meta hopes giving consumers a chance to try out the VR, the AR hardware, while that'll boost interest in the future of digital interactions. Company's head of Meta store, that's Martin Gilead, spoke to Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. Take a listen. What we learn from this store will definitely go into how we build the product and where we actually uh, continue to sell it. Why Burlingame and not San Francisco or New York City or London? 
Yeah, this is a great question. So Burlingame is the headquarters of Reality Labs, and we felt that it was important to have the customer experience that we're creating very close to where we're creating the product. We want that to be centered to how we continue to build innovation in the future. And so this felt like the perfect place to put our very first experience. I've been in a few different situations where you see a product in pop-up format, right? You're in a mall, you're walking yeah. perhaps in some kind of uh, outlets area. Could you guys look at pop-ups maybe, you know, doing temporary pop-ups in different cities around the world? Well, I, I think what we will learn from this experience is where we should be and the kind of experiences we should create. Uh, a lot of the experiences that we've built in our Burlingame store are unique. It's the first time some of these have actually existed anywhere. And I'm sure as you saw from our, our Quest 2 uh, demo, um, and as we learn more, we'll decide where and how those should show up around the world. Is this a luxury experience? Do you want it to be a luxury experience? We actually want it to be an approachable experience. We want people to feel comfortable asking questions. We built it so that people can pick up the products, they can test it out. And we have these great associates so you can ask questions. Um, and it can be so much more um, than what people read about. And it's one of those things where you have to experience, and that's what the store is built around. Talk to me what it's like going into the store. What am I going to touch, feel, experience while I'm there? Yeah, so th there's a couple things. Um, obviously, we have our products here around our Ray-Ban Stories where you can try glasses on that um, offer the ability to take pictures and video, which I personally appreciated having attended a wedding last week where I was able to actually be at the wedding while I was actually sharing it with other people. We have Portal, which actually I'm speaking to you on today, um, that allows you to have these conversations, not just for work, but even with family. And I think about the pandemic when my, my son had an opportunity to read stories to his grandmother every night, which was amazing. And then obviously, um, probably the most exciting thing that people see when they walk in the store is a mixed reality screen with uh, Quest 2 that allows them to actually not just try the product, but allow everyone who's with them to see how they are experiencing the game as well. And that experience uh, allows it to be in one that is shared with many, um, even though it's ex uh, experienced by a few. Martin, are you open to the idea that the, the store experiment might not work? That actually the best way for Meta to grow its hardware reach, virtual reality reach, is online? Well, the store is not an experiment. It is it is a continued investment from us to make sure that we can get um, feedback from our consumers, but also an opportunity for us to keep building and, and make sure this stays at the center of what uh, people are experiencing with our hardware. And you're the head of Meta Store, so I'll ask you again. You want to open some more stores? And where? <laughs> I think as we learn more about uh, how people are experiencing this, we'll, we'll be able to communicate what that means later. Right now, we're focused on what we are creating in Burlingame and the experiences that people will have here. Martin Gilead there, of course, head of Meta Store, talking to our own Ed Ludlow. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get back to the markets because, well, we've all been so focused on it for the day, for the last three days. And of course, the shares of Rivian are one to watch. The EV maker saw its biggest drop on record after a lockup on its shares expired on Sunday night. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow is here with the details. Remind us, what, what happened with the lockup expiry? This, yeah. of course, didn't go too well for Rivian. 
Right, so Rivian had this huge IPO in November, and as is often the case, when they have an IPO, some of the biggest investors and insiders and employees are restricted in what they can do with their shares initially. The lockup on Sunday night basically meant that 720 million shares of Rivian suddenly became available for public trading. They could be sold. And we had news reports over the weekend that Ford, which is one of the biggest Rivian investors, had sold a block of 8 million shares at a discount from Friday's close. And it's, it's just not good for sentiment. You know, when one of your biggest shareholders does trade when the lockup lifts, it kind of sends jitters throughout the market. And you look at how Rivian shares have performed since that post-IPO peak, where they were at $172 a share. We're now down below $25 a share. The stock's fallen 87%. And all things considered, when we come to lockups, it went as badly as it possibly could have gone. Badly as it possibly could have gone. Meanwhile, of course, there is one person or indeed one investor that's not selling, right? Yeah, so Abdul Latif Jamil is a big Saudi family conglomerate. They are the third biggest shareholder in Rivian behind T. Rowe Price, a big name on Wall Street, of course, and Amazon, which is another big investor and customer of Rivian. And they told me, we have no intention to sell down our stake, to sell the shares. And they gave a very public backing of Rivian's management. But we didn't have the same explicit backing from Amazon, for example. Amazon said they were committed to working with Rivian, but they didn't comment on or rule out selling the shares at a later date. And so there's a lot of psychology around this. What's really interesting, though, is throughout the day Monday, there's lots of data to suggest retail investors are now looking at Rivian, right? It's a cheaper option. They were oversubscribed in the IPO. A lot of retail investors missed out. So there could be some upward uh, trajectory from here. But it was just a really rough day. Biggest drop on record. Rough day for Rivian, rough day for many, Ed. We thank you so much. Let's talk about more of that roughness, shall we call it, and the tech sell-off happening right here, right now. What does it mean in public markets? What does that spillover effect to the private markets? I want to bring in Race Capital partner Edith Young for more on this. Of course, early stage Silicon Valley venture capital fund, so not unaware of what's happening in the public markets and the, and the race to enter those public markets. What do you make of, currently, let's talk stocks first, how much are we seeing this ripple effect affecting valuations in the private markets and people's desire to build right here, right now? Yeah, I think as, you know, Caroline, as an investor that really focused on early stage infrastructure software, the market is brutal and it certainly will impact a lot of devaluation in the private market. Um, but having said that, I think that particular in the world of Web3 and Web2, infrastructure software, just there's still so much more to be built. Um, like for us, particular folk at the early stage, I think valuation is not particular impact us yet, but at the same time, I'm still really, really bullish on some of the companies that we invested in. Still, you know, Solana, obviously a little bit more on the crypto side. FTX is a little bit, you know, still private. I'm so bullish on what they're building, but early stage is still missing a lot of building block. Mm. So I'm excited about Bundler, which is sort of storage for Web3, Notify, which is like communication of Web3. There's still so much more to be built, but we need to just hang tight. Um, and not get too scared with what's going on. Okay, let's talk about the crypto market because you mentioned two companies very exposed, basing themselves on Web3 and the future thereof. Um, when you see the biggest cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, getting hammered so much, when you see the spillover effects of, of VC money that's been placed into these sorts of businesses and, and now a pullback and perhaps that sort of risk uh, tolerance, does that mean that people are going to be worrying about the rest of the crypto space? How, how does a spillover over effect happen? 
Well, I, I think crypto and, and the Web3 space is not purely just about Bitcoin prices or token prices. It's really about the technology side of things. In my head, you know, in many, in many cases, Solana is basically building the, the AWS and the Web3 infrastructure. And not that long that there's still backup recovery communication storage is still not there yet. I think if we look at you know, crypto market, if you purely just look at exchanges, obviously it's a little bit crazy. But you know, three years ago, or even five years ago, when I first got into it, Bitcoin prices were three thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Today, it's still ten x. Um, and you know, three, three, four years ago, combined market cap about four hundred billion. But today, it's still over. I think one point three, one point five trillion. So in that sense, overall market is not going away. But you know, we definitely will see some ripple effect on what's going on. But yeah. I'm so super bullish because there's so, so much more things and the fundamental for the technology, which is not about crazy. Trading. It's about founders often, and I think of, of course, when you mention Solana, when you mention FTX, think of Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF have been on a podcast of Bloomberg's recently, Odd Lots, yeah. by my old colleague Joe Weisenthal, and a healthy dose of cynicism coming from SBF when it came to, well, <laughs> what's happening in terms of VC money, in terms of far- yield farming, in terms of, you know, what's been built in terms of in terms of, I don't know, the lunars of this world. Do you think this is a healthy sort of rebalancing in the market that will stop seeing just money, these sort of momentum trades that are happening within crypto? Yeah, Carolina, when I spoke with Emily in December about what's going to happen in 2022, I predicted that, you know, crypto prices usually dropped in the beginning of the year, and they certainly half. And, you know, I think for us it, with SBF, and I'm really, really thankful they got to invest in FTX pretty much early on in 2019. I think, like, the key thing is really about, you know, making sure that we, do, that we don't do crazy things. I mm. think, you know, investors is no longer just about investing is really about helping our founders to build, to make sure that we're compliant, to make sure that, you know, operating wise, you know, we are here to help them. And yeah. we, for many, many, um, as you just talked about, uh, Ravian and with the lockup, a lot of the investor just sell off right after the six months lockup. For many, many of our companies, like for Solana, I've been holding since 2018, I still will hold. It's all about being long-term and not being a short-term investor. I, I mean, at the end of I'm not a hedge fund. I'm not here to trade and make short-term money. It's yeah. really about like long-term holding, supporting the ecosystem. Uh, the ecosystem needs to be supported with regulation as well. And of course, FTX front and center with a proposal that's going through at the moment in terms yeah. of you know the future of options or derivatives and, and intermediation within that. How, I spoke to the new chairman of this ACFTC a little bit earlier. And how do you feel regulation is getting to grips with this new ecosystem? I think I think you know coming from the White House for for a few I think two about two three months ago having the executive order to basically indicate that they you know, President Biden really wanted to support, you know, regulate is a good sign uh, for the ecosystem long term. And particularly with FTX, the FTT token is not available for U.S. market. I think, you know, they make a really, really conscious choice to move headquarters to the Bahamas, uh, which I went two weeks ago uh, with the FTX conference, which is amazingly successful. And having a very, very clear line being drawn, what's being offered to the U.S. customers versus the rest of the world is very, very different. In addition to FTX, you know, Coinbase, which already gone public, is making a huge effort to make sure that we all regulate KYC, AML, 
you know, compliance. This is a really, really good thing for the crypto market long term. And we at Race Capital are here to support all these initiatives. Edith, it's always great catching up with you. Race Capital partner, Edith Young. Stay well. Thank you very much indeed. Meanwhile, coming up, well, Bitcoin, we were just talking about it, slumping at a level that was last seen in July 2021. We'll hear from Galaxy Digital's Mike Novogratz on that very fact. There's a Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything. Everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Time for our crypto report now with Bitcoin, of course, extending losses, even dropping below, well, almost 30,000 at one point on Monday. This is the first time it goes this low since back in July 2021, putting its decline from a November record high to more than 50%. Our crypto contributor, Shanali Basak, is here with more brutal selling pressure. Brutal, brutal selling pressure. And you take a look over here, Caroline, we've been talking about this one year merry-go-round that crypto investors have really gone through and Mm. Bitcoin being the brunt of that, the biggest cryptocurrency here. And you look at where we've gone more than 10% lower over the last couple of days, now getting a little bit of lift above 31,000 again. You and I have talked to Mike Novogratz a little bit earlier today with a real worry that they could fall below 30,000 if the NASDAQ also continued to decline. That is a low that he expects. Listen, but it's not just Bitcoin that we want to talk about, although that there is a lot of momentum in that downward pressure there. You see 
over the last couple of days. Let's talk about other cryptocurrencies, even stable coins. A lot of worry that you see over there with UST being unpegged to the dollar. I want to pull up this tweet from investor Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. And the worry that UST down more than 4% and under 96 cents at one point, the worry that a downward move in a stable coin like that can cause... Backed by Bitcoin. Backed by Bitcoin, <laughs> exactly. The most important part there, is there more selling that needs to be done to peg that stablecoin to the dollar. So there's a lot of worries here about how one asset will correlate to another asset. And let's take a listen here of what Mike Novogratz had to say about the selling pressure. We were 40,000 literally just a week ago. And so the pace of this move has been severe, right? It's correlated with the risk off that you're seeing in all assets, right? The rise of the dollar. Um, and so I still think 30,000 should hold. Right. We'll see if 12,000 holds the Nasdaq and we bounce uh, in the next few days, uh, then I think you'll see Bitcoin 30,000 30, will hold. If the Nasdaq falls and we head towards 11,000, you know, there's a shot that 30,000 goes. I would tell you, getting away from price, which is hard to do in a day when the market's down 10%, um, it's really interesting if you just look back at all the adoption that's happened this year. I mean, the first quarter alone, venture funds have put $14 billion into the ecosystem. And so this is a, a an asset class, right? Blockchain, digital assets, Bitcoin, that is getting tremendous investment, tremendous interest. And so while the short-term you know, outlook is painful, it's, and it's going to be, like I said, volatile with the rest of assets as the Fed adjusts from free money to, to normalized conditions. Um, my medium term conviction hasn't wavered. Uh, I really do still see this as a very exciting asset class with a lot of momentum. And Mike, in for correlation, because I think that was the main hope, the prayer, the saying that was going to these institutional investors that have come into crypto is that this is a non-correlated asset. But thus far, it's very correlated in large part, probably because more institutional players have come in and they're having to sell as they see the Nasdaq go down. Listen, it had less correlation until there was free money forever, right? The correlation increased dramatically after COVID because every central bank took a fire hose of liquidity and sprayed it on the tarmac. And so it made all assets. You could look at the correlation of, you know, fine wines or baseball cards or any collectible uh, to the NASDAQ to assets. And so we're unwinding this era of free money. Uh, and so it's not surprising to me that Bitcoin, which was a hedge against free money, is selling off. Uh, I do think those correlations will break down or will lessen the moment we find some stability in the market. But right now, if you're an investor, you've got 100 fires to put out. Did you overcommit to venture? Do you have enough liquidity to pay your private equity commitments? Oh my goodness, I used to be in risk parity. That doesn't seem to be working at all anymore. And so very few people want to put on new risk in a moment of this kind of tumult. And so I think once the tumult stops, I think that's a word, tumult. Um, once the chaos stops, then I think you're going to see the allocators who have been doing all their homework. Uh, listen, I just went around the country and to a bunch of conferences. I am wildly convicted that there is infrastructure being put in place to bring lots of capital into the space. Yeah. And so, well, again, it's, it's, it's surviving this, this unwind. 
that investors have to, to, to manage. When you talk about the unwind, though, Mike, you seem to be talking about a lot of people that maybe just saw the opportunity here. These weren't sort of the early adopters. These weren't necessarily uh, the crypto faithful, if you will, at least not in the traditional sense here. For those crypto faithful out there here, do they look at this type of market and think you add to positions, you buy into this dip, or do you just kind of stay the course and wait for whatever shakeout is happening to end? Listen, for the guys who have been in crypto a long time longer than me, this is par for the course. Mm -hmm. um, for most people who manage institutional money or manage lots of money, this is unbelievably painful. And so you use the same kind of risk analysis you do when you're trading other assets, right? I would tell you, though, that the new institutional players that are coming in are coming in with a very long-term focus. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you can put BlackRock and Blackstone and Citadel and Apollo into that bucket, right? Those are four of the biggest names in investing and that they're getting in, right? They're, they're working on infrastructure and trying to help create institutional frameworks to bring their clients in. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think this asset class is going away because we've had a 50% sell-off. Oh, your clients, your analysts today have been asking you about the recession probabilities and how you prepare for that. How do you prepare for that? So I think we are going to go into a recession. In some ways, that will be good for crypto because it will finally get interest rates calm and, and down again. Like, I'm sure we'll have crypto adoption both from investors. Uh, we're already seeing it with companies, right? So, but asset classes always get, prices always get ahead of where the actual, you know, building of a company is, right? Tesla wasn't even, issue, you know, selling cars and they had a, a decent market cap. And so you got to... Got to keep the story up until you can build product that then generates the revenue. That's the process that's happening in crypto. And so what crypto needs is stability in the, the non-crypto markets. At that point, you'll see stability in crypto and you'll see fast adoption. And Caroline, that was, of course, Galaxy Digital's Mike Novogratz. Galaxy Digital, MicroStrategy, both of these companies dropped more than 25% today in the mm. market. So you see that crypto decline actually exacerbated a lot more in those firms exposed to cryptocurrencies. Talk to us about exacerbating. Do you think that the pressure with Luda and the fact that a Bitcoin-backed stablecoin means that you have more setting pressure on people, on their, you know, on their treasury. Is this going to be a really ugly feedback loop? That's the big concern here, that there could be ripple, of, uh, ripple effects across DeFi markets. The question is, how low does that peg have to go? How much decoupling does it have to be? And how long does that have to last for the Luna Foundation, for UST to keep on having to sell Bitcoin into that decline? Shanali, always so smart when it comes to crypto. We thank you for that and indeed the interview with Mike Novogratz. Let's get back to the sell-off that we've seen across, well, every asset class today, basically, apart from bonds. Stocks tumbling to a new 13-month low. Michael Antonelli's with us, a bear, joining us to discuss the tech side of this in particular, because it was the Nasdaq, the Nasdaq 100, now basically in, in correction mode, down 10% in the last three days. How much further do we fall before capitulation? Well, you don't have to go very far to look for superlatives about how bad it's been for the NASDAQ. You're talking about uh, about a 25% drop year to date, which is the worst year, uh, worst start to year on record by a lot. 
the next closest is uh, 1973, which was down about 17%. So, uh, you know, not only that, uh, my friend Luke Kawa, Bloomberg alumni, yeah. he said uh, he said this is the biggest non-recessionary six-month contraction in the Nasdaq 100's forward PE uh, in history. So this 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 repricing just been vicious, very vicious and very rapid. But when you think about the last few years, maybe this is starting to make a little bit of a sense. If you were to look at the past, say from 2019 to the end of 2021, the Nasdaq is up about 164 percent. The Nasdaq 100 uh, annualizing at about 38 percent a year for three years. That's that's a lot. That's a lot. You know, when you look at this pullback, it makes sense from the perspective of the Fed is hiking rates. We're trying to take some steam uh, out of the markets. We're trying to tighten financial conditions. Mike, why didn't you tell us about this at the start of this year? Well, using valuations is a very, very difficult tool. It's mm. proven to be historically difficult. Historically difficult. But what sort of depths have we plumbed in terms of valuations vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the years? And, and indeed, why is company i can understand the thesis of like get out of companies that don't have any e in their pe but what about companies that really do like apple amazon microsoft why are they sort of being thrown out I mean, they, those are certainly the largest holders and the ones that we watch the most because if those crack, that really portends a, a very bad market. If you look at some of these really big names, you know, one, one of the things I was looking at today is the fact that most of their big drawdowns, okay, the things like a couple, here, just throw a couple out here, like Facebook and Apple and NVIDIA, their biggest drawdowns recently were in 2018, 2019, not during COVID. Mm. So they were during this pandemic crash. They were about rate hikes. Same thing back then, uh. 2018, 2019. So it's very, very similar. Multiple compression. The Fed just takes these multiples out of the system. And if you look at some of the high flyers, you notice that all of their COVID multiple expansion is completely gone. Earnings are actually doing okay. So it's all this Fed-driven multiple compression. Where can it go to? I mean, right now, uh, I looked at NVIDIA and Adobe, and they're both at roughly the same forward PE as Clorox. I don't know what that says. <laughs> Clorox about, did pretty well know, today, Michael. Clorox did pretty yeah. well. <laughs> I, don't know whether that, I don't know whether all three of those are too expensive, but Clorox, Adobe, and NVIDIA kind of have the same forward PE right now. Okay. Is there any technical lines, any, any assets that you're looking at? Because it was interesting today, correlation started to work in a different way. We actually saw commodities get caught up in the selling. We saw bonds finally become some sort of haven trade. What are you looking for in terms of where to catch up where tomorrow's trade is going to go? I thought that was important, too. I really did. I was watching the five-year note when I woke up because I just kind of view that as a good proxy for the terminal rate. And it was up to 310, and then it just the yield started plummeting down to 295. I like that. That's maybe a little bit of flight to safety, which mm. we haven't seen for a while. You see that oil trade down. That means maybe people are having to sell their winners, having to sell the things that have been doing well this year. That's important. That That's a little capitulatory to me. I look at two things. Like I said, that five-year note, I want to know that the, the terminal rates at three or less. I need that to stabilize. And then I look at something called uh, discretionary over staples and I equal weight them to kind of take out Amazon uh, and Tesla. So I equal weight them. And that's what my friends at Strategia is called one of the best uh, strategists in the world. It's kind of a look at risk on, risk off. So I wa I'm watching that. I need that to make a low. It hasn't. Uh, it has not yet. So discretionary over staples equal weighted is a good proxy for risk on, risk off. I need that to, to, to find a bottom too. Michael, love how you push us forward. We thank you. Michael Antonelli, of course, a bad. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. But we'll continue to follow this ongoing sell-off and the impact it's having across the board. We'll be back here tomorrow, joined by Tony Fidel. Of course, he's got his new book, Build, an unorthodox guide to making things worth making, as well as get his thoughts on the tech markets. We'll also be joined by Falcon X's head of institutional coverage. Of course, we're talking crypto. This is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. 
And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.